Welcome to another episode of the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Please enjoy today's episode. So thanks everybody for joining. And so my name is Peter Kapitein, cardiac surgeon from Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And five years ago, I joined Medtronic as chief medical officer for cardiac surgery, structural heart, and for mechanical circulatory support. And I'm also leading our clinical research and medical science uh, for Europe. So I, I love the profession a lot. I, I was also uh, secretary general for the European Association for nine years. But when this opportunity came up, you know, I was for half a year in doubt whether I would take it. But I also love to build that bridge between physicians and, and a company. And I think it's important that the company also hears the voice of physicians. So that's why I think it's great that you join here today to get other voices, especially from the next generation of surgeons, uh, that we can express what, what you want, why you choose a specialty, um, you know, tips and tricks for upcoming residents, etc. So shall we do then quickly, Daniel, maybe you first? Sure, yeah, absolutely. My name is Daniel Ziazadeh. I'm uh, originally from Michigan. I was born in Seattle. I'm the chief uh, I6 resident here at the University of Rochester. I am staying on as faculty uh, as an adult cardiac surgeon coming this July. Excellent, great. James? Uh, yeah, my name is James Bailey. I'm also from Michigan and I'm the chief resident at University of Cincinnati's I6 program. I'm going to be going to a private practice in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I'm going to be doing a diverse, both cardiac and thoracic, uh, pretty much everything adult. Excellent. When are you going there? Uh, I start there in August. Okay, nice. Uh, Tessa. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm actually currently in Michigan, but I'm not from Michigan. So I'm from uh, Los Angeles, California, and then I uh, did my residency at University of Michigan. So I finished my I-6 residency this past uh, fall, and then I stayed on for a super fellowship in heart failure and mitral valve. And I'm currently still looking for jobs and sort of whole decision search process, so. Great. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much for joining as well. And then Natalie. Hi, my name's Natalie Ostro. I'm originally from North Carolina, but I'm now living in New Jersey. And uh, I'm a second year traditional fellow at NYU. Great. Thanks all very much. So let's jump into uh, a conversation about your know, residency programs and, and careers and, and choices that, that you all have made. Maybe I start with Tessa. So obvious, re obvious question that we always ask is about what was the reason that you choose cardiothoracic surgery as specialty? Yeah, so for me, it was definitely, it was not something I knew right away. It was a dis, it was a path. And in medical school, I realized I loved surgery, but I was really open-minded and I liked vascular surgery and I really liked transplant. And so when I did my cardiac sub, it wasn't until my final year of med school. And it really combined everything I loved about vascular surgery, but also transplant. And I felt like heart transplant was the coolest operation and very rewarding. Everybody's so excited and always very happy. And I also really enjoy taking care of critically ill patients. And I found that in cardiac surgery compared to some other fields that you're really coming into patients' lives at a time that is extremely impactful, whether for better or for worse, all types of surgery are important. Um, but you know, when you do open heart surgery, it tends to make people change their lifestyle and maybe quit smoking. And it really has a big impact. And people reflect on that as one of the most kind of meaningful and important moments in their lives. So it's really an opportunity, a special opportunity to, to, to guide patients through that process. And it's an honor. And I also really enjoy the technical aspects. I enjoy the physiology. And so for me, it was a combination of my interests and then also what I enjoy doing on a day-to-day -day basis and what I find rewarding. Right. Was there anything that you found out after you have started that you hadn't thought about? 
Um, I mean, there, there's so much. And I think really for me, there, one thing I did think about it before I started, but I think you really can't fully take on the true responsibility and, and in some ways burden of what it, what it really means to hold someone's life, life in your hands until you're really, until you're really done with training, I think. And I think it's, you know, when you're making the decision, it's really important to try to understand that and to also understand that you really don't fully understand it yet. And that that's a huge responsibility and that we will do things, even though well-intentioned that may result in complications that can be devastating for patients. And that's something that you have to live with and know that someone's got to do it. It's your job to do the best that you possibly can and somehow move on. And I think that's the hardest thing to both understand and probably to sort of mature and kind of uh, master too. Yeah, absolutely. So James, was there anything that, you know, the stressful aspect of the, the job, was that something you realized when you made that choice? Um, so I kind of came to this with a little bit of a different experience leading up to this. My dad was actually a cardiac PA, so I kind of grew up around cardiac surgery as a field um, and really got a good sense of that. I worked as a paramedic when I was an undergrad, and so I kind of came into this with some medical active experience. Honestly, I wanted the pressure. I wanted the stress. I wanted to be the person making the decisions. And I wanted to really lead every aspect of my patient's care. I didn't want to just be a technician. Um, I had an engineering background as part of my undergrad. And, you know, a lot of people thought I was going to do orthopedics because of that. But I found that there just wasn't enough active engagement, at least in the systems I'd been exposed to with that specialty. Uh, and I really wanted to be, one of our attendings has kind of the quote, the cardiologist that operates. And so I have a diverse understanding of every aspect of the heart, uh, every aspect of the entire patient and try to just do the best for them. So I found the stress to be more rewarding than really a negative. Right. Yeah, good. Can be addictive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Danielle, maybe what James mentioned, you know, that, that whole aspect, the spectrum of taking care of patients from start diagnosis and making sure, you know, you, you, you're going to do the right procedure and then operate the patient and the follow up. Those, some of these aspects are a little bit disappearing because other specialties take over. Take, for example, intensive care medicine. Sure. Is that something you worry about? Do you think it's a good way of what the direction is in the specialty? You know, it's interesting. Our um, cardiac ICU, you know, certainly staffed by intensivists um, who have uh, some, you know, either formal training, for example, in cardiac anesthesia or in clinical uh, critical care cardiology. But all of the patients that are admitted to the cardiac surgery ICU at the University of Rochester are admitted under the surgeons. And that's been kind of the way that our program has run um, the intensive care, you know, really from the get-go, um, going back, you know, 30, 40 years ago uh, with our former chair, Dr. George Hicks. So we really kind of embody the ownership of the patient uh, in the ICU. And as the surgeons, you know, we're the ones that are really leading their care. So I'll kind of echo what, you know, James said is on the cardiac side, certainly that's, I think, the direction, you know, that we've moved to uh, or have always been. But on the thoracic side, you know, we see patients really at their early diagnosis. So for example, I just came out of a, a minimally invasive esophagectomy. And so, you know, patients come in with diagnosis of dysphagia and their gastroenterologist will, um, you know, do an endoscopy and scope them. And then when they come to us, we kind of um, redo the workup. So we'll do, you know, the EGD, we'll um, get their staging scans, uh, we'll get their diagnosis, we'll refer them to medical oncology, we'll, you know, refer them to radonc. Um, they complete their neoadjuvant therapy and then they come back to us and, uh, we'll manage them, you know, through the perioperative period into the postoperative period, and they remain our patients for life. I think that's, you know, one unique thing on the thoracic side, especially with the oncologic care, is that, um, you know, once that patient's diagnosed, they're really yours uh, until, unfortunately, termination. Right. 
And do you also see them at the outpatient clinic for follow-up? All the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we see them for their three-month, six-month annual scans. Um, a lot of these patients will come back with strictures at their anastomosis. Uh, we'll do their EGDs with savory dilation in the clinic. So um, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Natalie, um, are you involved with a transcatheter valve program as well? Um, we we have an excellent transcatheter valve program and I actually had a family member who participated in it as a patient um, and just had a great experience. It's something that our, our residents and fellows will rotate on that service, but we at this time don't spend that much dedicated time there. I'm not sure. They, they have formal fellowship format, so that's usually the person that's on service. Right. Is anybody else uh, here involved in the transcatheter program? Daniel, James, or Tessa? Yeah, absolutely. We um, work at both community hospitals as well as our primary university hospital. At the university hospital, um, it's a cardiology-led program that's a little bit lower volume, but we've got a community hospital that's really actively involved in wide-ranging research with transcatheter devices in general. And there, the uh, surgeons actually alternate with the uh, cardiologists who's doing each operator position. And so, you know, I would routinely be doing all portions of Taber valve deployments there and was very actively involved in patient selection. Right. And and are you doing those procedures as well, James? Yes. And where I'm going, it's a very similar setup that um, they've got it, you know, in writing that half of those procedures will be mine and half of them will be the cardiologist so that, you know, I'm not going to be giving up that patient population and, you know, I'm not at risk of, you know, kind of getting boxed out of the aortic valve. Right. Maybe Tessa, there's always this uh, challenging issue, you know, that you you either can go to the OR and do do surgery, or you can go to the cath lab. Uh, when when there's a choice for you as as a fellow or a resident, what what would you prefer? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think during my residency, I always prioritized the open cases, and that you know was was the priority for basic competence, I guess, in adult cardiac surgery. But at Michigan, I mean, we have a very robust transcatheter program, both for aortic valve and also mitral and tricuspid valve. And so um, as a fellow, I've actually been making extra effort, um, particularly in the mitral and tricuspid space to spend a lot of extra time in the cath lab. And we have a great relationship with our, or I guess I should say the hybrid OR suite really. And so we have a great relationship with our interventional cardiologists and they let us get hands-on and I work with the interventional cardiology fellow. And so that's one of my goals as a fellow is to get that sort of extra skill set as much as I can in advanced transcatheter work. Right. Do, do, do you foresee that that might be challenging in the future where, you know, you, you have to do mitral valve surgery, aortic valve surgery, you have to be on call because then you also have to be able to do an acute dissection, for example, or maybe if you're working in a transplant center to do a transplant and you have to do transcatheter heart valve implantation. Is, is that some, is it doable or do you think it will further subspecialize? Ah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's doable. I think it's what we're doing right now, but, you know, we do have at Michigan, at least we have developed sort of niches within adult cardiac surgery and different subspecialists who take dedicated aortic dissection call, transplant call. And that's not how it is at every institution, um, that, that division of labor model. Um, but I, I do think it can work. I, I do know though, now having been on the interview trail, that that's not how it's done everywhere. And there's, plenty of places where the interventional cardiologists do the mitral clips completely by themselves. And so that's something that, you know, I'm not used to, um, but I'd, I'd like to remain involved. I think it's really important to be dynamic. And, you know, so many of my mentors have reflected on their careers and said, really, 
like 90% of what they learned in their training is like, no, is like extinct, you know, now. And so it's so important to be adaptable in this field and to maintain a close, you know, maintain up to date on technology, both in terms of your knowledge and your skills. So I, I, I'm trying to go into my practice with that mindset. Yeah, great. So Daniel, you also mentioned, you know, that you're using new technologies, less invasive technologies. Is that is that where the specialty should go? I think that's where it's going because ultimately patients want to have a less invasive approach. You know, we see all of our aortic valve patients in the structural heart clinic. Every patient is seen by a cardiac surgeon and um, an interventional cardiologist. And we have a you know similar kind of specialized niche model where we have two adult cardiac surgeons who offer isolated aortic valve replacement through a right anterior thoracotomy. That's actually our exclusive pretty much way of replacing the aortic valve of this institution with, you know, say for, you know, bad endocarditis, root abscess, things like that. And, and, you know, patients, I think most of them have known someone who has had a sternotomy and hope to never have one themselves. So, you know, the premise of having a percutaneous transcatheter, transfemoral taver, you know, becomes very appealing and ultimately you know, the long-term data just isn't there. I think the push, you know, on the cardiology side is to get these transcatheter valves in patients at a younger and younger age. And I think the advent of the field, at least for isolated aortic valve surgery, from a cardiac surgery standpoint, is going to be a TAV or explant as those valves start to fail. But we haven't really seen that yet. No, no, right. Yes, yeah, so fortunately enough, you know, the, those patients are older that got a TAVR valve. And, and so maybe that will change in the in the coming years that you will see more patients with a failing transcatheter valve that needs to be operated. So Natalie, those those cases will not be easy. You know, if you have to replace a transcatheter heart valve with an endocarditis, uh, that are challenging cases. You know, sometimes you have to do a root replacement, for example. Who, who will be the surgeon that takes on those very complex cases? Oh, yes. That's a very good question. And uh, I think that's going to be us because it's really gonna be during our career that we're gonna see these patients come back. And um, yeah, you're right, it's gonna be a big challenge for us. And and do you, so the fears that sometimes people express is that, so in the future, surgeons that can operate those very complex patients are, are you know worth their weight in gold because there will not be that many if you have to you know do transcatheter heart valves and mitral and tricuspid transcatheter heart valves. So the ones that spent a lot of time in the OR, um, gained a lot of experience, are, are very important. Then, do you? So do you again? Maybe coming back to that that theme about subspecialization, do you think that there will be surgeons that specifically focus on late complications? Yes, and I I agree that we are headed in this direction already. Specifically for our program, our TAVR surgeon, I mean, he heads up the TAVR team and uh, he doesn't do any of the aortic dissections um, and he's not expected to be on call in the same way that the other cardiac attendings are. And so I think that there is a place for that kind of specialization where you have certain surgeons that are very skilled in doing technically challenging open procedures and then you have others who are um, more focused on the minimally invasive cases. Yeah. Any, anybody who disagrees with that out of viewpoints, you all agree with that, that that might be a subspecialization again. So, yeah, yeah Daniel. You know, in, in an academic setting, I mean, I'm sure Tessa and, and James and Natalie can all agree, you know, at our medical centers, the division of cardiac and thoracic, at, at least, you know, in Rochester can be at times very siloed. And as you go out into the community, take a job like James did, James is going to basically be expected to 
integrate both of those two different, um, very different training specialties and be competent in both of them. Um, yeah. But as you're at these quaternary uh, referral centers, I mean, you're going to have someone who isolate, you know, does the isolated mitrals, who does your VADs and your transplants, who does your dissections. You're going to have an advanced coronary surgeon. You know, you may have a complex endocarditis surgeon. So I, I think the gamut of training is only going to get deeper and deeper and things are going to get more verticalized. Yeah, exactly. So James, what, what kind of impacts does it have on training? I mean, I think for me, our department's actually a little bit on the smaller side. Um, so we have three cardiac surgeons, three thoracic surgeons. So pretty much everybody does a little bit of everything. We've got one person who specializes more in off-pump and one person who specializes in less invasive surgery at the main university hospital. But as a result, I kind of had, you know, the role models of whatever comes in, you know, that's what we take on. And so uh, I think it's prepared me well uh, seeing, you know, a lot of different people's approaches to a lot of different problems throughout both cardiac and thoracic. And from my standpoint, you know, I'm probably not going to be doing Rosses, but I'm going to be doing, you know, just about everything else that you could imagine, you know, other than probably Rosses, LVADs, and transplants. So, and yeah, I think right. that, that, that probably is enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. for me, it's, you know, I just like having diversity and I like being able to take on pretty much any challenge. But at the same time, I recognize when somebody, if they've got time to go to an extremely high volume center, you know, Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic, something like that rather than a small community hospital that, you know, I'll be honest with the patient and tell them, technically I can do the surgery, but you may be better off at, you know, you may have better results if you go to a larger center where they're doing, you know, 100 of these a year, whereas, you know, I do one or two a year. Yeah, absolutely. I think just being able to recognize my limitations is going to be important. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.